So welcome to our listeners to our inaugural podcast from your team here at the Bone and Joint Journal. I'm Andrew Duckworth and this is our first production, so I thought I would just briefly explain what we hope these new podcasts will add to your reader experience. Our aim and hopes are that we will improve the accessibility and the visibility of the studies that we publish for both you as the readers, but also for all our authors as well. During the next 15 minutes or so, uh, when some of you I'm sure are busy commuting to and from work or even on your morning run, we hope to discuss a range of aspects for your chosen study, emphasizing the important points of how the work has been designed, as well as the key findings from the study and how these potentially fit into each of your busy day-to-day clinical practices. We also hope to give you a behind-the-scenes insight into how the authors have developed the study, conceptually delivered it, and also give them the opportunity to put forward the key findings that they think are important. So today I have the pleasure of being joined by Professor Matt Costa from Oxford to discuss their study entitled Economic Outcomes Associated with Deep Surgical Site Infection in Patients with an Open Fracture of the Lower Limb, which will be published in the upcoming edition of the BJJ. So a big welcome to uh, Matt and thank you for taking your time to be involved with our first BJJ podcast. Hey, Andrew. It's a pleasure. Great. So obviously the management of open fractures has continued to move forward in the past few years, as you obviously note in your paper with the advent of major trauma networks and previously published guidelines. So to kick us off, could you give us a brief background to the paper and what made you look at this particular topic in relation to open fractures, which utilizes data obviously from your recently published WOLF trial? Uh, sure. So the, the, the trial itself, uh, WOLF, was really um, looking at a particular type of uh, wound dressing. So the interventions being tested were, were two types of wound dressing. But um, with these large clinical trials, um, and WOLF was really unique and it was the first major trauma trial to come through the UK major trauma network. So it really represented a whole national perspective on the management of a particular injury, uh, in this case, open fractures. And the trial allowed us to collect um, research quality data, by which I mean data with very complete follow-up, prospectively collected um, within the context of the trial. So it gave us an insight into open fractures more generally beyond just the, the interventions actually from the study um, in the trial itself. And, and just for the, the, the listeners, so what sort of patients were included in the WOLF trial? Obviously, there were lower limb fractures, but was it sort of a wide range? What, just to give them a concept of who's involved. Yeah, well, this was the trial was really about the most serious um, open sort of fractures. So these were the ones where the surgical team, and nearly all of these patients were treated by joint orthopedic and plastic team as per sort of current major trauma network guidelines. So these were the injuries where the surgeons felt that at the end of the first wound debridement, the wounds could not be closed primarily. Um, So um, the higher energy injuries with the biggest soft tissue uh, damage, so the most severe injuries you can have, really. Mm -hmm. Okay. And in terms of, obviously, this the main purpose of the the paper that we're we're going to discuss is about deep infection. Just how was that defined? Obviously, I think it used a CDC definition. And was that just done uh, basically by the clinicians who reviewed the patients, was it? Uh, no, so the, the infection data, and this is a really important point because um, uh, one of the problems with talking about infection and doing research infections is indeed the definition. And um, bizarrely, most papers that report deep infection following any surgical intervention don't actually report the definition they used, which mm. is pretty pretty worrying, really. Um, so um, in this study, all of the data regarding infection was collected independent of the clinical team. So the patients were reviewed. Um, after 30 days, by independently by research nurses trained to assess the wounds. Um, we took photographs, uh, made clinical assessments, and reviewed the records at that stage. Okay. And then um, patient reported uh, symptoms at three, six, nine, and 12 months as well. And if mm-hmm. the patients reported any symptoms, so it could be related to a, a wound healing complication, 
we went back to the clinical teams and the primary care teams to check what those um, what those symptoms really were and what the treatment was. And and from that information, we extracted the uh, yeah CDC uh, definition for deep infection for all the patients. Um, the primary endpoint was thirty days because that's what CDC said at the time of the study. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also collected deep infections up to one year as well, which is also according to the guidelines. So it seems like there were sort of multiple ways, you know, you're covering all the bases in terms of making sure that that definition for deep infection was was pretty clear. Yeah, we tried to. I mean, it was a, a sort of major effort. And we're really sort of breaking new ground, uh, in, certainly in the context of open fractures, trying to collect this data in a mm-hmm. systematic way. And um, it's not not straightforward. <laughs> so we learned a lot along the way, but I think we probably did the best we could in terms of really working out which patients had infection. Yeah. Yeah, is what is feasible, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so obviously the primary outcome of the study um, that we're about to discuss was looking at costs, wasn't it? And in particular, the costs associated with the deep infection. Um, and you also mentioned in the paper that there were two sets of long-term economic consequences which were measured within Wolf, sort of a preference-based health-related quality of life outcome and, and overall economics costs. So can you just give a, for the listeners just a brief description of that? Obviously, because the, the, the analysis is obviously quite complex in the paper, isn't it? It is, it is. Um, so... There are different forms, really, of health economic analysis associated with clinical inter- interventions. And the one that the National Institute of Clinical Excellence in the UK recommends is a cost per quality. Um, so essentially, that means taking all of the costs associated with managing the, the injury. And this is not just what it costs the NHS in terms of the initial treatment in hospital. Uh, also includes the NHS costs afterwards, so all the follow-up, all the rehabilitation, further surgery, uh, further mm-hmm. interventions, um, but also the cost to society more broadly, so the personal social service perspective. So that includes any benefits taken at home. And we also assess costs according to the, the patient's personal point of view, so time off work and so on. So actually within the context of the trial, the great majority of the data, the, the, by far the biggest data set was actually the resource use that allowed mm-hmm. us to generate the costs associated with injuries in the study. Um, the second facet is then the quality of life. And we use two health-related quality of life measures in this study. Um, one's the EQ5D and the other is the uh, short form uh, 12, which are just two ways of collecting similar uh, but subtly different information about general quality of life. And by plotting quality of life changes over the year after the injury, we were able to work out the quality adjusted life year, the quality. Yeah. Um, and then it's a simple matter of um, dividing the cost associated with injury by the quality of life of the patient over the year after the injury. And then you can compare um, the cost per quality of those patients with infection compared to those patients without infection. So that's the gist of it. That's a whistle-stop tour of what we were trying to do. Um, the actual way that the analysis is done is, you know, as you say, reasonably complicated sure. for the average orthopedic surgeon, including myself. So... Um, do you want me to talk a little bit about the actual regression modelling and how? No, that was- I, I don't think so. I think, I, I think you've done a great job there of it, but I think it's just getting that idea of the two separate things in terms of, like you say, the quality and then the overall healthcare costs. And as, I'm sure, as you say, and anybody who's involved with clinical trials, when you collect the da- all the data, the, the thing that collects the most data is the health economic analysis. Often, isn't it? Because it's just the, the detail of which is collected is quite phenomenal, really, isn't it? No, absolutely. That is by far the biggest part of any of the major trial uh, data sets, as you you know well and. And collecting that data is not straightforward. Um, so, yeah, it's a testament to the, the clinical trials unit team, really, the amount of effort that goes into yeah. following patients up and, and checking we've got all that information. Absolutely. And I think it's sort of just sort of moving on to the, the results. So you had 460 patients that were there 
um, included 35 who had a deep infection, uh, which was about a, a rate of about seven to eight percent. And looking at it, the, the, the completeness of the data is quite remarkable, really. I think there's only two patients that, that there wasn't complete data on. Is that was that right? Yeah, so uh, complete data in terms of the infection. Yeah, we had very powerful follow-up. We, you're always inevitably going to miss some elements of the resource use data. So there, there was far more missing data in resource use. Nearly all the patients, in fact, pretty much all the patients, gave us some information about COTS, but not everyone filled out every uh, single detail in resource use. So, for example, uh, we asked patients uh, not just did they have medication after their um, wounds, so painkillers or antibiotics and so on. We asked them what dose and for how long. And that's a big burden for patients to give us all that information. So inevitably, we lost some detail. Um, and therefore, we used a technique called multiple imputation to actually account for missing data within the, the analysis. Um, I think in the context of open fractures, the follow-up is, as you say, quite remarkable because the patients who have these severe injuries are not necessarily the patients who are good at Absolutely. Yeah. So young men who ride motorbikes don't particularly yeah. like to get bits of paper as a general rule. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I think that's the, the thing. And I think it's a good example of how using, you know, good complete trial data, you know, and on a further analysis after you've done the initial trial can be very useful, kind of, because you have such a complete data set from, from that original study. Well, I think that's right. And, you know, people are finding increasingly that the best quality data we're getting is, is actually from the big multi-centre trials, uh, simply because we have the resources in the trial context to collect very complete data in a way that's almost impossible in, in routine clinical practice. So, yeah, I think we're, you know, there's a new, there's a trend certainly towards using this data in different ways to look at some uh, sort of observational studies as well as the actual trial questions. Yeah, so just looking at the sort of the patient population, there were obviously a slightly higher rate of infection seen in diabetes and patients with smokers as well wasn't it which you know again you know it's obviously something we know from the literature intuitively but it's actually good to see it in a, a big data set like that, that that's that's shown there is a difference there but looking at the health related quality of ice can you, you sort of summarize that in terms of the costs and and how it changes between those with deep and deep and without deep infection yeah so um and there's loads of information here i mean it's really fascinating stuff i mean the first thing to say the really good news is that the rate of deep infection found within Wolf in the context of the UK major trauma network is probably the lowest ever reported for this, mm. these most severe injuries. So 7.5% seven, seven uh, on average across the, the 460 patients in the study is, is testament to some fantastic work going on uh, across the country in terms of trying to reduce the rate of infection. Um, and I, I think if I had to guess, um, the biggest factor is the joint orthoplastic working. So the collaborations between orthopedic and plastic surgeons to really ride these wounds and plan the surgery from day one, I think is, oh, is you know, yeah. probably the biggest reason why. Um, in terms of the change in quality of life, well, that's where it gets a bit more depressing, really, because, um, you know, we often as surgeons think that at three months, if the, the wound's healed or the flap has taken and there's a bit of callus on the x-ray, we're, you know, we're pretty happy. Our, our job is done. This looks like it's going to heal. But what the patients were telling us that in terms of quality of life, even a year after the injury, they were still showing quality of life reduced by about half. Uh, so a 50% total loss in health-related quality of life, which, just to put it into context, is equivalent to having a stroke. So there are massive effects on patients and in the longer term as well. So that is a major worry. And I think certainly I, as a clinician, I think many people underestimated quite how debilitating and how much of a general effect on, on life these, these terrible injuries have. So... 
overall throughout the study, patients recovered, obviously, after the initial treatment, but yeah. we're still reporting significant losses of the life in the first year after the, after the injury. Yeah. And in terms of the cost, the cost, of, you know, obviously, with infection, and we have you know, data about infection after sort of arthroplasty, but the, it, it, intuitively, you think infection costs money, but it's quite stark, the, the costs that you've uh, presented there, aren't they? I mean, there's some very high figures. <laughs> There are, yeah. So um, the cost of just treating these injuries is, you know, around £15,000 per patient, and they, they go up considerably. But the really interesting thing, I think, about this um, data is that actually I was quite surprised actually how little the cost in general went up associated with infection compared to what we know, as you say, from the aftermath literature. Yeah. yeah. And I think we tried to explain why this was, and I think it's because if you... Having an f- infection per se is not the issue. Having... You know, that to some degree is inevitable after these injuries, no matter how good the care. But having early successful treatment is the key. So if you have an infection and you have a very early debridement, you have deep samples, appropriate antibiotics, mm-hmm. um, and then, um, you know, definitive treatment, and you get a resolution of your infection, the costs associated in the longer term are then not gr- particularly greater than those patients who never had an infection in the first place. However, if you have uh, chronic osteomyelitis, then you've got lifelong costs Including yeah. the you know all the costs associated with amputation, both from a, a patient perspective and also from a um, you know resource use perspective. So actually, it's not infection that costs money; it's the sequelae of infection, yeah. long-term consequences, not treating it aggressively and fully at the beginning. And that's probably the key message from this paper. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think it's all those extra bits. You, I think, like you, you put it quite well there. Is that you think once you've got the the wound healed and the fracture healed, then you think, you know, the job's done, but there's so much more after that, isn't there, that, that happens to the patient and to their, and the healthcare costs associated with that, really? There is, and we, um, you know, we, we wrote about this recently, Liz Tutton, colleague of mine, um, wrote about the um, patient experience from a, a qualitative point of view recently. Sorry, very far away from this health economics paper, Andrew, but yeah. the, the long-term emotional consequences, psychological consequences, injuries are, are huge. And I think as surgeons, we kind of, we underestimate that. I think we're increasingly aware of the problems, but actually how to manage them and how to support patients is... Yeah, absolutely. good at that, I don't think. And, yeah, and then in a busy fracture clinic, these things are hard to sort of, they take time, don't they? That's the, that's the thing. Oh, completely, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, the content, you can't imagine the worst place to discuss your psychological well-being in a busy fracture clinic, can you? I mean, it's... Uh, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Um, so sort of, uh, sort of moving on for a general overview of it, so obviously the strengths of the study in terms of the size and the quality of the prospectively collected data are without question, you know, and the economic analysis is, 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 is very good. You know, so in a, in a nutshell, Matt, what do you think of the CLE clinical filings, but also what do you think are there any limitations to the study that you, you know, you'd like to talk about at all? Uh, so, I mean, I guess the key takeaway messages are that in the context of a, a functioning major trauma, national major trauma network, you can reduce um, deep infection rates down to 7 or 8% even after the most serious open fractures, which is you know, fantastic news. Um, if patients have infection, the costs go up. But if you treat those infections early and aggressively and you get resolution, the costs in the longer term are manageable. You know, they're not particularly greater than those for patients without the injuries. However, if you have the long-term sequelae, the deep infection, osteomyelitis problems, um, then that's when the costs really spiral out of control and also the, the consequences for the patient spiral out of control. Yeah. In terms of limitations, then uh, because the infection rate was low, which was obviously fantastic news for the patients, um, you have fewer events within your analysis. So yeah. you've actually got the 35 actual deep infections to 
to work within this um, data set, which, you know, it produces, we're less precise in our estimates of the costs associated with these injuries because the numbers are, are lower. Yeah. Having said that, deep infection after open fracture, you know, there's not many studies that have uh, this sort of level of follow-up. And, and so it probably, it's, it's certainly a useful contribution to the, the literature, even if it's yeah. not the, the final word. No, no, I agree. I think, I think it's not, not really a limitation, but I think what would be of interest is actually the longer-term outcome, because obviously these patients are still, even at a year, there's quite a big impact there. You'd be interested to know at two, five years if that, that, that impact is still there, really. Yeah, they're all, they're all um, in long-term uh, follow-up at the yeah. moment. We're going to follow them until at least five years and then see what yeah. the data looks like. Uh, I don't have that data yet. Yeah, no, effect. of course. No, 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 absolutely. But I think it, I think it probably, I suspect it might shock us in terms of their still their impact and their quality of life, potentially. Yeah, it's a worry. I mean, if, you know, I, at one year, I'm, I'm pretty, you know, pleased myself if the, as you said, the wound's healed and the, the bone's healed and thinking happy days. But actually, the patients, that's not what they were reporting. So I think you're probably right. I think we probably underestimate the effects in the longer term. Yeah. And just a sort of final question, you know, in terms of the research in open fractures in general moving forward, what do you feel are the sort of areas we, we should move into next? Well, I think um, particularly related to this, um, this particular study, um, it's really about reducing the rate of um, infection. And so I think there's work to do with um, implant design, you know, surface topography and so on, coatings perhaps, um, looking at reducing infection rates. But I think probably the bigger win is in the reducing the variation in clinical practice. Because although major trauma networks undoubtedly been a step forward in the management of these most serious injuries, there's still considerable variation around the country in terms of how quickly we're able to get definitive wound cover what mm. types of flaps are, are used, and there's research to be done there. Um, and um, exactly, you know, when is the best time to get these injuries uh, um, closed? I think there's still lots to be done that we could improve um, in yeah. our management of open branches. Yeah. I think, I'd like to say, the improvement that's been made already, you feel that, you know, with the, the, right, the right infrastructure, it certainly is, it is achievable, isn't it? It is, it is. I mean, it's, it's huge. And it was interesting when we presented this work abroad, people were kind of interested in the study and the infection rates and so on, but actually how the network functioned was the, was the um, uh, major source of interest. And I think probably no great overestimate to say that it was jealousy from a lot of countries, you know, including very well-developed healthcare economies in, in North America and Australia, Australasia. Um, yeah. you know, we're actually quite jealous of what we, the facilities we have and the systems we have in place uh, now in the, in the UK. So um, yeah, I know it's, uh, it's pretty good news, I think, for UK um, sort of trauma care and the NHS in particular in the time when it's not always great news, actually, to yeah. show a success story like the major trauma networks is pretty important for people. Absolutely. So, Matt, thank you so much for joining us for our inaugural BJJ podcast and congratulations on another excellent study. Well, thanks very much, Andrew. It's a great pleasure. Um,